Eagles Entertainment. Eagle Eye in the Sky is fueled by Gatorade, the official sports drink of the Philadelphia Eagles. Everything that move, I don't care who it is. Let's go. Give me everything you got. Play fast, play hard. Let's beat these boys tonight in their house. It's party time. It's party time. Let's go. Touchdown. You are listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's run of the week, and we're good to go for Green Bay as the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade, continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and as always, I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 291. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with Ben Fennell about the Eagles' Week 13 battle at Lambeau Field against the Green Bay Packers. We'll talk about the matchup, things that will come into play for this game, and I also we we'll to take a little bit of a step back, look at some of the schemes that they employ and what exactly make them work. We're hit on all of that right at the top of the show in Chalk Talk. After that, Ben and I will go through our scouting report segment. And this week, I wanted to focus on one of the best players on the Green Bay Packers, and that's pass rusher Zadarius Smith. How is he going to impact this game on Sunday afternoon? How does he factor into the team's pressure package? How has his game changed since his days at Kentucky? We'll cover all of that in scouting report. The show does not end there, though, because at the end of the show today, I also caught up with Eagles linebacker Alex Singleton to talk about his athletic background and how he's gotten to where he is today in the middle of the Eagles defense. Before we get there, though, just a couple of things I want to make sure I remind you guys. Best way, number one, to support us, to go on to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, leave us a rating, leave us a comment. If you leave a question, I'll be sure to respond to it right here on the show. If you enjoy my conversations with Ben here every single week, then make sure you go and subscribe to the Journey of the Draft podcast. You can go find that wherever podcasts can be found. It's that time of year. The college season's coming closer to an end. The NFL season's getting a little bit closer to the end. You may be starting to wonder, who are some of the top prospects that are going to be available next spring? We have got you covered over on the Journey of the Draft podcast. You know, my Myself, Dane Brugler, Ben Fennell, Ross Tucker, twice a week, every week. And by the way, one of my favorite parts of Journey of the Draft podcast this year, we've worked in a new segment. It's called Scout Stories. Every single week, I talk with a current Eagles college scout and discuss a current player that's on the Eagles from back when they came out of college and entered the draft. We wrap it up with some big takeaways and good discussion about the position in general. This week, I caught up with Eagles Director of College Scouting, Anthony Patch, to talk about Eagles running back Corey Clement when he was coming out of Wisconsin. Here's a chunk from that interview. All right, joining us to talk about Eagles running back Corey Clement is Senior Director of College Scouting, Anthony Patch. And Patch, uh, welcome back to the show, man. I wanted to talk about uh, Eagles running back Corey Clement. And, you know, coming out, he was an undrafted free agent. Um, you know, and there was always, like, this uh, – allure you know around the Wisconsin running backs and the production they've been able to have but you know they they didn't produce at the NFL level all the time uh, I'm interested to kind of get your memories on, on scouting Corey and, and your experiences with him uh, leading up to the NFL draft yeah Corey had a really you know unfortunately for Corey at Wisconsin um, he was hurt you know up to his last year basically I mean he had procedure uh, a couple of times and so really, his lone year was his last year, and but he made the most of what he had that last year at Wisconsin. And, you know, he kind of fell through the cracks going undrafted, you know, because of the injury history probably, and just his testing numbers weren't great. But, you know, he's, he's a local kid. He was a highly touted kid, obviously, going to Wisconsin. And it's unfortunate he had that injury history going into our, at, at Wisconsin. Otherwise, you know, he, he would have been drafted for sure. 
But, um, you know, he ran like, I think, 1,300 yards in his last year and only season starting at Wisconsin that year. Yeah, he, and he was a guy, too, like I mentioned, you know, when you have those, uh, the, that history, you know, going back to, you know, Ron Dane at Wisconsin, and, you know, so many guys that have been so productive uh, in that school despite the change in coaching staffs, despite the, the change in systems. For our listeners, you know, I feel like that gets talked about a lot is like oh well you know stay away from the Wisconsin running back or you know back when I remember when I was in like high school it was like, oh the, the Florida receivers don't touch the Florida receivers they never work out um how do you kind of fight through that as a scout when you're you know evaluating these guys on an individual individual basis so year over year yeah he just you know I don't know and Corey had a great senior year you know and I think he just got floated out because you know the injuries and he didn't test well but he, you know, like I said, he ran for 1,300 yards that year, and we did the due process. He, he was a local kid, so people obviously knew him in the building and felt obviously really good after the draft. I mean, we had draftable grades across the board. So, you know, after the draft, you're thinking, you know, this guy's still on the board. Is it medical or is it, you know, the testing? And we were just happy as all get out to get him after the draft. You know, approved, you know, the one thing we didn't see at, or I didn't see when I went on the visit, you know, on teams and, Geez, Fran, I don't know his impact and special teams for us early in the career here with uh, Coach Phipp has been unbelievable. So that aspect he didn't see. And, you know, he, you know, he was there, you know, Melvin Gordon was before him, James White, you know, those guys have been good pros. So take every case by case. But, you know, we, we felt good about Corey getting where we did and what he's done for us. Great conversation there with Anthony Patch. And if you think that's a segment that interests you, I implore you, go back, listen to those segments. We've had scouts on talking about Miles Sanders and Deshaun Jackson, uh, Carson Wentz, Jason Peters, Jason Kelsey. The list goes on and on. It's been a really fun segment, and we've got a few more to roll out here over the next few weeks. We have it every other episode over on the Journey of the Draft podcast driven by AAA. And again, you can find that wherever podcasts can be found. So talking about Journey of the Draft, let's talk about with the guy who is on every single episode of that show with me. That's Ben Fennell. Let's dive into our chat now in Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. Well, excited to welcome back to the show my buddy Ben Fennel. Ben, uh, real quick, we'll touch on what Eagles game plan is going to look like this week. You know, basic rundown. Uh, we talk about the the Green Bay Packers offense and you know what they do in the past game with obviously Aaron Rodgers, but namely Devontae Adams. And and Greg said it earlier this week here on this show, but also said it on the on Eagles game plan. He feels Devontae Adams most well rounded receiver in the NFL um, with everything that he brings. And we we decided you and I kind of decided to focus in on. Uh, you know, his usage and where they line him up all over the formation and how those tight splits uh, can really be beneficial for both Aaron Rodgers and for Devontae Adams. Um, that was something you and I touched on last week here on the show with the Seattle offense and those tight splits. So you can go back, listen to last week's episode and see really why that can be so impactful against defenses. And then uh, on the other side of the football, talking about the, that pass rush package with Zadarius Smith, Preston Smith. You put Smith on the inside as a three technique and have him working against guards. But uh, overall, just kind of, uh, you know, big kind of takeaways, overarching takeaways from those two topics and, you know, going into this matchup overall. Yeah, this is a fun matchup that seemingly we get almost like every year. It just ends yep. up that way. There's a lot of carryover from players and coaching staffs and styles and draft tendencies, a lot of deep conversations between these two teams. But a lot of attention on Devontae Adams, who's really solidified himself in the last two seasons as a perennial top five receiver, not only from his fellow receivers, but cornerbacks, you know, given their admiration and praise for him as well. And his whole arc and career trajectory is really an interesting study as well. 
there's so many interesting things with Devontae Adams from him being a relatively slow four five five type of receiver coming out of Fresno State. Really struggled his first year or two to catch the ball and to be consistent. And it, you know, it really mirrored the way Nelson Aguilar, uh, you know, is early in his career. The Eagles struggling early on to just straight catch the football. Really, uh, you know, lost some confidence, but. Each of them have really ascended uh, later in their careers. But Devontae Adams, his ability to win all over the field is as diverse as any receiver in the NFL. That's winning inside, outside, left side of the formation, right side of the formation, number three in trips, slot, and then against all levels of the defense. So the quick game, the intermediate, the deep stuff, the double moves, beating press coverage, off coverage, zone savviness. This guy every week, there's been a couple of games where I've profiled it where I said, he hit the equivalent of the receiver cycle because he literally beat every type of coverage at every level of the defense from every spot on the field. And then his releases, stems, breaks, double moves. I would implore anyone to go watch his film session where he sits down and talks with Brian Baldinger and really goes down through a lot of his process. He knows he's not a blazer. And that's what makes his craftiness and the technician aspect of it so much more impressive. And to hear him talk about Keenan Allen and all these other guys around the league that he's taken uh, certain aspects from, it's just a really fun study and player. So I guess the, you, know, you, you follow this Packers team very, very closely. You write, for, write about them for The Athletic. Uh, when you look at the, that, that arc, that career arc for Devontae Adams, I think that's kind of an important thing, that, an important takeaway uh, for the listeners is, you know, year one, even year two, right? I mean, they, there was not thought that Devontae Adams was going to work out, and now he has turned into one of the best, if not the best receiver in football. Uh, you know, it used to be, Ben, I remember years ago when I first started writing uh, about the NFL, writing, I did a lot of fantasy football writing, um, you know, back for like Yahoo Sports and Pro Football Weekly. This is back like mid-2000s, 2004, 2005, 2006. I remember specifically writing articles about like, uh, of like, Year three for wide receivers is the breakout year. That's, you know, those are the kind of guys you target in fantasy football, right? And I feel like that has kind of gone away as we've seen uh, some receivers come in and have some success. And certainly there are those guys, but receivers a tough position to go from college to the NFL. Um, you know, so it's kind of interesting, I guess, that, that kind of being the takeaway there, you can't give up on a guy too early, especially at the receiver position. Yeah, no question. And just, I feel like the guys that flashed immediately – are the ones that we now set these broad expectations for that we want results immediately. But they're more of the outliers, in my opinion. Yep. I think it takes a, a maturation process. And a lot of it's how you're used and the positions you're put in and what you're asked to do. And obviously the things, you know, two years ago that Debo Samuel was being asked to do was different than some of the, the outside receivers. And um, some things are more translatable from the college game to the pros. And I'm thinking, Fran, when you're talking about that mid-2000s era and into 2020, I feel like the receiver position has become one of the more translatable positions from Saturday to Sunday. Mm. I can get production and results out of that player faster than maybe another position. I think that's a lot to do with the schemes we're seeing on Saturdays now bleeding into Sundays very similar types of offenses and the roles of the receivers are obviously then mirrored on Sundays. So that's a deeper conversation, I think, but um, a really fun just to study the trajectory and the expectations of these players that you draft. And I think a part of that, it comes down to, and it's something we talk about all the time over on the journey of the draft podcast is that, uh, you know, you find what a player does well, how do we put him in those positions? You know, the Eagles just played DK Metcalf last year uh, as a rookie, a lot of DK Metcalf's routes, 
were the same things that you saw him do at Ole Miss. We talked about the limited route tree with him, but you know he lined up on the left side of the formation very often for Seattle, and that's what he did at Ole Miss. And he ran a lot of slants, screens, go balls, slants, screens, go balls. <laughs> like, hey, we're going to ask him to do the same things, and then we'll gradually work him in. And that's you know what they've done. And see, now you see a little bit more expansive route tree. You see him line up in the slot. You see him line up on the right side, and it's a similar kind of thing. You mentioned Debo Samuel, like. San Francisco 49ers are not having Debo Samuel run, you know, isolation routes outside the numbers to try and create his own separation. They're finding ways to get him the football on the run and really accentuate his strengths. We talked about it with his Cooper Cup, you know, Cooper Cup with the Rams. Like we, we talked about it right here on the show back in week two, like not good against press coverage coming out of college. All right, we're going to line him up in stacks and bunches and we're going to get him free and we're going to let him kind of get up to the second level and then use him as a route runner. And then we'll ask him to create a separation. It's all about... We're just stuck in this world of like comparative analysis though. So if DK has a big rookie season, it's comparing him to the other rookies. And if you don't live up to that, you're a bust after year one. So whether it's Jalen Rieger, J.J. Ortega-Whiteside, Rashawn Gary, whoever it is, you don't have to write their story after year one. Some of these guys take time to develop and mature and whether it's their body, their brains, whatever it is, some just had a baby and you know, things, life is happening fast. We're so quick to just anoint somebody or bury somebody immediately. We have to have a stance and it has to be a polar. It has to be either all the way over here or all the way over here. I love looking at Devante Adams and say, you know what? Slow down everybody. All right. You don't have to label them after year one. It's a development. It's a maturation process. Have some patience. So let's go. We're going to take this a little bit differently than what we've normally done. We're not going to do, uh, you know, individual matchups and things left on the cutting room floor from game plan. What we're going to do is we're going to kind of look at this matchup. We're going to look at this Green Bay Packers team and, and ultimately how the Eagles will look to defend them on both sides of the football and how to attack them. But I want to pick a couple of different elements that I think will be impactful in this game and just kind of d- dive into the whys. The, why do teams do it this way? Why, what is the goal here? And ultimately, how, how does the opponent try to limit that? And the first thing, I think, you know, you and I, um, you know, we talk, obviously we watch a lot of football together. We, we watch a, lot, a ton of film together over the years. One thing gets your motor running faster than anything else is running backs, running routes out of the backfield, vertically downfield. So, uh, you know, wheel routes, sail routes, rail routes, you know, you know all anything where a running back is uh, releasing from the backfield and getting to the second and third level gives you a lot of juice. And the Green Bay Packers, maybe more so than anybody in football right now, are using running Aaron Jones, Jamal Williams, uh, getting those guys out of the backfield and down the field I want you to talk about why you feel running back verticals are such an, uh, an effective tool for an offense and why they're so tough to deal with. You know, uh, releasing these running backs vertically is near and dear in my heart. It's something we've seen across the league over the past couple of years really catch fire. And first and foremost, it's using that personnel. A running back position is traditionally one of the more explosive players on the field. Don't limit him to just underneath routes in the run game let's get him down the field into open spaces using that vertical speed and explosive element the other aspects of releasing from the backfield are a couple schematic things really tough to jam these players you would typically would have to designate a defensive end or a pass rusher to leave his assignment to bump that releasing back and then go rush the passer and the back runs his route we've seen that around the league but it's very tough to do because you're subtracting a pass rusher Uh, away from obviously trying to attack the quarterback the other thing is you're attacking defenders from depth 
So if the running back is seven yards beyond the quarterback and the linebacker is five yards off the line of scrimmage, you're approaching that defender with space and from depth. That allows you to build up speed while attacking him. And just imagine a receiver with a press corner, nose to nose. You don't have that with a running back. So you have more space to operate to get to a faster speed to attack them. And typically that safety or linebacker in coverage is catching that player. And what I mean by catching is your feet are still, your feet are stopped, and you're kind of allowing them to come to you and you're going to react. You're so usually, you're so quick to break left, break right, break downhill, not usually ready to turn and run against these players that already have a head of steam. So there's a lot of schematic aspects of just the human natures of one player still, another player running full speed at him, putting him in a serious conflict of movement patterns. So I love just those kind of uh, aspects. There's some other schematic aspects because that route is delayed coming out of the backfield. You're typically the second or third route through coverage. So the coverage is already defined by that point. So typically those wheels and those seams and those sails are going to be the second or third route through the zone that end up coming wide open. A lot of different layers and aspects to it, but it's something that's been around the league for three, four, five years now uh, and it's getting more and more creative. That's, I was glad you brought up that last point because I feel like that part is is almost like not talked about enough um, from a media standpoint is that it's not only you get the matchups and it's man-to-man against a linebacker or safety or whoever it is, appeal player. You know, yeah, a, it's a whole other aspect. It's just the running back against a better – you have a better matchup there. Yeah. yeah, no question. But then you factor in – like go back to the Boston Scott touchdown that won the game for the Eagles against the Giants. Like the, the Giants had a bracket coverage going. If they had known on a whiteboard, hey, they're going to get a vertical route coming out of the backfield – that's probably accounted for with the bracket. But since that, all those other routes have already expressed themselves and the running back is last into the format, is last into the, the second level. Just like Corey Clement in the Super Bowl. No they question. doubled Ertz. Yeah, if they had seen Corey Clement release when Ertz released, they would have accounted for him. Yeah, it, when it's, it, so it's tough to account for that when you're looking at that from a pure coverage standpoint. So flipping this around now for the Eagles defense, what does this mean for them? How, how do you account for that? To me, uh, look, going into this matchup, you know that this is an effective tool in the toolbox for Matt LaFleur and for Aaron Rodgers. So, the, you know, the safeties, the nickel corners, the linebackers, they're going to have an idea. Hey, like this, this is something that could be coming our way, but you've got, to be, you've got to be aware of where those backs are at all times. When you're in zone coverage, when they're in man, it's going to ultimately come down to like you got to be able to you know hang in the hip pocket of the running back when he's uh, working. Yeah, and the there's field. some technique aspects when you're in yes. man coverage. You got to play on your toes. You got to keep your feet moving, ready to break, and be aware that this route, whether it's an option route or a choice route or even a design route, can go vertically. You have to have that aspect of thinking. I have to turn and run here. If it's zone coverage just honoring and, you know, playing discipline in your zone coverages and knowing that second or third route through the zone is typically going to to attack that vulnerability. But there's some negatives as well. So everything has a pro and a con to it. Some of the negatives of releasing that backfield, you're at negative depth. So that means it takes time to get into the defense. And then if you want to get into the second or third level, Fran, that's even more time. Yep. So where's the negative there? <laughs> you better protect the quarterback if you want to hit these these plays of the running backs down the field vertically. Yep. They're not on the line of scrimmage like a receiver, and then one step, 
you're into the defense. No, you have to run five, six, maybe seven yards before you even clear the line of scrimmage. So it's a long developing process. The protection has to hold up. So there are some negative aspects in using that as well. And not to mention the, the idea that the running back is running uh, very close, very tight to the formation. We, you and I were just watching some Clemson offense uh, earlier this morning. Uh, they're leaking Travis Etienne up to the second and third level, a little pop pass. He gets <laughs> held up because of all that traffic inside. Time no is thrown off and Trevor Lawrence gets a hit. So, you know, there's, a, there's certainly a chance for things to go awry there. And that's rarely a, a, a check release either. If right. you're releasing vertically, you're not part of the pass protection. No, you're going, yep. Yes, no question. So if, if by chance you get blitz call there, there could be a conflict of style or, you know, a, a somebody putting a bind there where the quarterback maybe has a, a free rusher because you don't have that extra man in protection. All right, let's get to an, an extra aspect here of this Green Bay Packers offense that the Eagles will have to deal with, and that is the use of jet sweep action, pre-snap motion, um, namely from that from jet aspect of it, though. And uh, we've talked a little bit about it here, but let's talk about the the – what the goal is for the offense, and namely, I mean, you study this uh, Green Bay Packers offense so much. What is their, how did they use it as a tool, and where, what part of the game does it really impact most for them? Yeah, it's been really interesting to see this change in style coming from Mike McCarthy era. Last year was a Habsy Matt LaFleur, and now it's full systems go of Matt LaFleur. Um, you're seeing all the pre-snap motion. You're seeing a lot more bunches, a lot more RPOs, all that new age stuff to help the offense generate yards and, you know, put conflicts on defenders and attack space. He's really done a great job in finding all those schematic elements to help move the ball down the field. First and foremost, the pre-snap motion, particularly jet motion. Mm. And at the end of the day, it helps the run game about 80, 90% of the time, Uh, as opposed to the pass game. And from a human nature standpoint, this game is complicated. I like to break it down to just a simple human nature. When you have moving parts pre-snap, it forces defenders to think. And when you have to think, you hesitate. So there's a connection of mental processing into your physical processing. The second you then hesitate, you're a step behind or maybe you have an eye violation because of that moving part, you're, there, you're then a step behind. What does that delay then do? It allows blockers to maybe get an extra step to leverage their assignment. It could maybe create hesitation and literally create a seal in the defense or a lane in the defense to, to attack uh, via the run game. So just the human nature aspect of a moving part, we have to then think and assess and diagnose before we can move. So first and foremost, it just causes you to think out there. And sometimes, Fran, that's all it takes to be a half step ahead from an offense to a defensive perspective, and that's a big game for you. Yeah, and it really ultimately it comes down to everybody kind of doing their job. It, it's funny because you've uh, we see so much of it now around the NFL, and so for that reason, we see a lot of those clips kind of circulating on Twitter and you know what leads to this play success. And you'll see everybody blamed on jet sweeps. You'll see defense, oh the unblocked defensive end, he's got to make that play. All oh, the linebacker play side, he's got to make that play. The safety from depth, he's got to make that play. Why isn't the corner making that play? Look. All it, it depends on the, the construct of the play. Each of those are you know, there's little wrinkles here and there, depending on the offense and the execution of the play. But ultimately, all of these guys have got to be on their P's and Q's in order to uh, you know, fit the run. I know it's a different, it's an exotic kind of run. It's not a normal, uh, just hand it off to the back and it's going to be a gap scheme between the tackles. It's not that kind of run, but it, restore, it requires everybody to be gap sound with their assignments and making sure 
that they're not reacting to something else. You, you've got to just do your job within the run fit. Yeah, and without going too deep, always like to be fair and paint the full picture. Some of the negatives of jet motion, first and foremost, you don't typically see it when teams are behind or in hurry up. Why? Because it takes time. So you have to key that guy to go across the formation first, just a little couple extra seconds pre-snap there. So if you play, so if you're a team that plays a lot of tempo, you're going to use a little bit less pre-snap motion. No question, because then you're allowing the defense to catch a breath and have a couple extra seconds pre-snap. Yep. A couple other aspects of that pre-snap motion. Some quarterbacks, traditional 90s, early 2000s, didn't like motion because what motion does on the offense, movement on the offense will sometimes change the picture on the defense. Quarterbacks like Peyton Manning didn't want the defensive picture to change because it was tougher to assess what they were doing if they had moving parts. We have moving parts. You have moving parts. What happens from pre-snap to post-snap? And the same thing goes for offensive linemen, which I've heard more of today, Mm. in saying, I put my hand in the turf, I blinked, and the picture changed because we had motion. So all of a sudden, my blocking assignments and angles and tracks change based on man schemes, gap schemes, zones, whatever they're running there. But long story short, the picture changes. So the assignments change, your eyes change, things like that. Other aspects, you have a jet motion receiver. Typically, he's not using a route combination. Yep. He's kind of already taken away. We're starting to see some creativity, some jet into a takeoff up the field, things like that. It's really starting to evolve. But there are some negative aspects too. And I always like to paint the fair picture because everyone's going to say, well, if it's so great, why isn't everybody using it? Well, different strokes for different folks. So pros and cons to everything. And Aaron Rodgers historically was one of those guys that kind of fought it initially, right? He did not want that pre-snap motion for the reasons that you kind of illustrated. You talked about one aspect of it that we're starting to see a little bit more. The Eagles have used it a little bit. I think back to uh, the long play by John Hightower. They brought him in jet motion from right to left uh, and then sent him on a takeoff route immediately. The reason why that's so effective for an offense is that uh, you know, basically, if you're if you're a uh, a zone team from a coverage standpoint, if you're a, you know you play a lot of pattern match zone, you're going to have different rules based on the coverage call. So, uh, and it, a lot of that will f- you know, change depending on what the offensive formation is. Your rules are going to be different in uh, pattern match cover three if you're seeing a three by one set versus a two by two set. Well, if you use those jet motions and that receiver is going to release vertically, what was a two by two just like that changes to a three by one, and you have to know all of your checks on the fly as you're moving and dealing with what, however those routes deploy themselves. And so that, that also can become a little bit of an issue. Uh, at amazing, amazing to talk for five, 10 minutes and not say horizontal stretching either. No question. Stretching the defense horizontally, making yeah. them guard every bit of grass left to right. We're so used to talking about vertical spacing, taking the top off the defense, stretching the defense. You could stretch them laterally as well, and that typically will then stress zones and open up other players because of that stress and spacing they have to cover. All right, so um, a lot to unpack there. And one of the things we talked about was the Aaron Rodgers. You know, wasn't wasn't really embracing the pre-snap motion stuff early on. Well, he is. I mean, he's executing it at such a high level. This is some of the best Aaron Rodgers I've ever seen. Um, you know, he's one of, certainly going to be on the short list for the MVP vote when the season is done. Tell us, as someone who has watched every Aaron Rodgers snap since, you know, from the start of his career till now, how has he evolved, especially over the last few years? Because you and I have watched a lot of his, a lot of his film together over the years, uh, especially in the last four or five years. And there was a lot of head scratching. There was a lot of like, man, like, oh, what was he thinking on this one? Why did he take this sack? Why didn't he throw this ball? Why didn't, why did he throw this pick? Why is he running here? This receiver's wide open. This is exactly what the play was designed to do. 
that's not really the case as much this year. So take us through right. how you kind of view that and his evolution under this system here with uh, Matt LaFleur. All right, really quick, just going through it, uh, you know, in a linear fashion. We yeah. all know Aaron Rodgers blessed us all with amazing plays out of structure improvisationally for eight to better part of a decade, eight yep. years to a decade, won a Super Bowl, an MVP. We've seen it. Great results. Suddenly, as you're getting older and you had the knee injury a couple of years ago and the collarbone and maybe not as fleet of foot, when you get older in your career in your mid-30s, late-30s, 40s, you don't hold the ball longer. That's not how it works. Any yep. quarterback that has success into the twilight of his career, whether it's Kurt Warner, uh, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, they're pocket-passing assassins that win with their mind and their experience. There's nothing they haven't seen. They know there's vulnerabilities in defense, and they're going to find it. Yep. They know where it is. But Aaron still relied on his improvisational, out-of-structure process which no longer started to produce the same results. So then we started to look at the process of it and say, why didn't he make that first read? Why is he trying to escape a clean pocket? Why didn't he make this throw? And we look at his stats at the end of the season and say, oh, he barely threw any interceptions. Because we aren't grading the throws and in the decisions he doesn't make. Yep. So for a number of years, he was a little greedy. He wanted plays to break down. He held on to the ball. But suddenly, we weren't getting the results anymore. So we had to study the process. And we started to say, what is he doing? He needs to be a pocket-passing quarterback distributor first. You don't rely on improvisation as a primary skill set. And I've said that over the years. That's a secondary skill set to solve a problem. And I've always said, kind of tongue-in-cheek, Aaron Rodgers' highlights are from the pocket. And that's me saying, stop running around. Use your arm. Play from the pocket. And that's what we've seen last year into this year in the change of Aaron Rodgers. The more willingness to play within structure, within rhythm and timing of the offense. He's on pace right now for his career best time to throw, which is a great metric from PFF. He's on pace for the fewest scrambles of his career. I mean, last week, Fran, he had four touchdowns. It looked like an awesome game. They're for just over 200 yards on 21 completions. They ran 39 times for almost 200 yards. Yep. This was elite game manager Aaron Rodgers, and that is not a negative. You know who wants a game manager? Everybody. And he's doing it at a very, very high rate. He's got seven games this year with no turnover-worthy plays. He's taken the fewest quarterback hits. They're running the ball. He's executing on third down, play action. When you run the ball well, he gets the ball out of his hands. Typically, not a whole lot of sacks, not a whole lot of hits, not holding the ball anymore. And it's just refreshing to see because he can play till he's 44, 45 years old because he still has one of the most gifted right arms on the planet, even at this age. He's still accurate, and he's still a very, very good quarterback. You just need to change his style. And I think it's one of those conversations that really kind of – went underneath the nose of national media and figuring out, is it Aaron Rodgers or is it all this problem around him and no first round receivers and where's the talent and the scheme and seemed to be everybody but him, but he was part of the problem and now he's fixed it. And I think it's a great, great story for 2020. And I think it's a, a takeaway. Like to me, like, all the analysis of Carson Wentz, and Carson Wentz obviously is not playing well, right? We, we know this. I'm not like breaking news there. I think ultimately when you talk about Carson Wentz and you, and you say like, okay, is he a quarterback who is not playing well or was everything we saw three years ago a mirage? 
I would say I would absolutely argue option A. I, I think he's a good a good quarterback that is not playing well right now. And I think when you look at Aaron Rodgers, the way that he played up until this year was not he was not playing the quarterback position at an extremely high level. And even like I remember there were games there were games where he would throw for like three touchdowns and lay you know, three hundred and thirty yards and PFF and you could argue PFF grades. You know I'm not going to sit here and say and pound the table for PFF grades. But they would grade him as like one of the worst quarterbacks of the week, and everybody would be like, "Well, these guys don't know what they're doing." <laughs> but it was because of that. It was because he was not playing the position at a level where you would say, "Like, oh man, like he is, you know, he's executing everything the way you want it to be drawn up." That is not had not been the case. He just happened to overcome that at times, and it, you know, sometimes that resulted in uh, you know high pre, high uh, volume games of you know great production. Other times it didn't. It's not like you know, if you play fantasy football, Aaron Rodgers was not a, a first-round pick uh, for the last handful <laughs> right. of years because he was not playing to that level. So to and, me, those, that, and those grades also fed into the conversation saying, well, why is he graded so high then? Right. And I think that it's really interesting um, when you kind of take that and say, okay, well, what can Carson Wentz do moving forward? He, there are things that he, he's going to need to correct. But don't say like, hey, like you know, there's there's no way that Carson Wentz can can reach that level of play uh, once again. He can get this turned around, and I think ultimately uh, the Aaron Rodgers uh, narrative, the, the the arc there, I think is an interesting one to follow. Really quick example that I've used for years, just to give people a picture of what I'm talking about with Aaron Rodgers. Fran, it's third and five, man to man, slant flat. Let's just say the guy guarding the slant falls down. Yep, it's wide open. The quarterback doesn't throw it, breaks the pocket, runs for six yards, and gets the first down. Does he get a positive grade or a negative grade? Right. So, I put this on Twitter a couple of years ago. You know, I'll yep. let you have the floor here for a yeah, second. I was going to say, like, I feel like a lot of people would say that would be a negative grade. There are some that would say positive grade, but there are a lot of people that would say that's a negative grade. Well, it's actually the opposite. The number of people that say it's a positive because the result he was got the first down. Positive. Yes, of course. He got six yards. But like I said before, you do not rely on improvisation as a primary skill set to execute a play. Mm. And if the primary objective was there and available and you didn't take it, you did not do your job as a quarterback. That's mm-hmm. a negative grade every day of the week, in my opinion. And that's a great snapshot of yeah. the process versus results with Aaron Rodgers. The results were, were positive, but once those results stopped generating, we had to look at the process and what was going wrong. And I think it's really kind of night and day in 2020. And to clarify, I have the, the comparison Aaron Rodgers to Carson Wentz, what Carson Wentz is going through, it is not a – perfect apples to apples comparison this is you know Carson is, is there's a lot of there's other factors at play and you know, in terms of the things that he has to correct versus what Rogers corrected but same kind of idea and that so you saw a lot of bad play from Rogers you'd say the same thing about Russell Wilson Deshaun Watson certainly as well uh you know there, there are issues with young quarterbacks go through it that, that this is part of uh the development and, and the process. blessing of all it all Fran is with just like when Aaron Rodgers was struggling we never once said he doesn't have the ability yep right and same thing with Carson Wentz he still has the ability, folks. Yeah, no question. You know, he's just maybe it's, you know, the confidence, the scheme, whatever it is. But it's just a, a confidence that everybody should have in Eagles world to say, you know what? You can still fix this because he has the ability. All right. Well, let's uh, quickly wrap this up with one of the, the highlights offensively uh, for the Eagles this past week, I thought was um, a concept we've seen them run. And the reason why I brought this up was that watching the the Packers I've seen this concept run from the Packers a couple of times this year and it was this the, the play I'm talking about is the Dallas Goddard touchdown uh late in the first half was late in the second quarter um Carson Wentz hits him in the middle of the end zone on what I, we call a stick nod return concept so I just wanted to kind of paint the picture of what the play is 
And if you can kind of take us through why you like it so much, because to me, like this is a play that when I think of Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, this goes back to when Mike McCarthy was there. They ran a bunch of simple, basic West Coast offense staple concepts. You know, they, you mentioned slant flat. You know, so, you know they'd run stick, they'd run double slant. I mean, ran all those those basic quick game concepts, those two two man route concepts. And then they ran all of the double moves, all the complimentary plays off of that. And I feel like stick not return is a great example of that. It was effective for the Eagles on Sunday or on Monday night, rather. And the, the Packers have used it throughout the course of this season as well. Take us through stick not return and what it looks like. I have to start getting a whiteboard on these podcasts here, Fran. But uh, they're essentially two double moves. A stick nod is a more traditional double move and uh, playing off of the stick route, which is literally five, seven yards and turn around. But here you fake the turnaround and you re-break up the field. So the stick and the nod, the nod means go, nod means release. It's not stick, nod, go, because that would be stick, go, go. Stick, go, go, yeah. The nod means go. So a stick, nod, you're faking the stick and going up the field. The return route is essentially breaking to the outside, running a couple steps, and then re-breaking back inside. So if you could kind of visualize the stick nod on the inside and the return route just on the outside of it, they're both going to kind of put their foot in the ground at the same spot, break subtly to the right. Their tight end will break up the field with the stick nod. The return's going to come back underneath that route if you have the right visual there. But the return route is a very vanilla-style double move. It's typically just a uh, an underneath kind of progression route, but – at the end of the day, it is a double-breaking route uh, by definition. Uh, it's a, a great breakdown of the play, and it's really effective when – I like these you, exercises. It gets me sharper on explaining the scheme, especially with no whiteboard it. or anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's no visual, so you got to do yeah. it all through, uh, through audio. I think the, 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 cool, the best part about the play is when you've got something on the opposite side of the field – that can remove those defenders from the middle. So, uh, you know, in this game, uh, the Eagles, they had that little uh, that little now screen, that little picket fence screen set up to Greg Ward. Carson Wentz turns to his left, pumps over there. That moves two defenders from the middle of the field, from the post. That creates some space there for Dallas Goddard. Now, essentially, one-on-one with a safety in the post, right. and he's able to win for a touchdown. And there's a couple ways to win that, too. You know, if it's man-to-man, we love double moves just based on the double move essence. Yep. If it's zone coverage, we're essentially high-lowing that linebacker. If he runs up with the tight end on the stick nod, the return route's going to be open underneath. And vice versa, if he bites yep. underneath, the stick nod should be an open. So a yep. bit of a zone beater of a high-low, and we always like double moves against man coverage if uh, protection can hold up. And if everything's there, or if, or if everything's taken away, you throw it into the third row. You throw no it, question. Uh, you know, throw it <laughs> Live to play another down. Exactly right. Well, uh, Ben, this was fun, man. A little bit of a different spin from what we normally do uh, here on the show. Uh, before we let you go, though, we're, we're, I'm not going to let you roll without uh, some stats here. Give, give us a stat or two um, that you're kind of looking at as being pivotal to this game. Yeah, you know, we talked about just this uh, full deployment of Matt LaFleur's offense, Green Bay's offense, top five, and bunches, stacks, motions, RPOs. We're going to see all that kind of easy offense generated. Eagles got to tackle well. They're going to make completions, try to get yards after catch. Eagles just at the rally and tackle. Bit of an interesting conflict here. I don't think people are realizing how dominant this Eagles defensive line is. They have the second most sacks, the third best sack rate, the fourth best pressure rate. And that's going to meet Green Bay's offensive line. That's taken the fewest quarterback hits this year, the best hit rate. I think they've only allowed – I think Aaron Rodgers has only been hit 16 times in 11 games. 
which mm-hmm. is remarkable considering Carson leads the league at, I think, 64 times, nearly four times as many. So interesting style, a really good protection against a pretty daunting uh, Eagles defensive front there. I think it's going to be a really interesting style. The other thing with Green Bay's offense, lost all the shootouts last year. Anytime a team scored 25 points, 0-4, including that big NFC championship game. This year, when teams score 25 points, they're 3-3. and Much more willing and able to win the high-scoring shootouts. you got to be able to win different style games. Uh, a big one for me, real quick. And this is a segment that's actually going to air on Eagles Game Plan this week. Uh, you know, for our tape study segment, I kind of looked, but went back, watched that Eagles Packers game from a year ago, and uh, you know, a big part. You and I watched it together. Um, you know, the, the first down offense was so good, and the, the Eagles were just so efficient in this game, in that game back last September. I mean, there was no sacks, no turnovers. They put, I think, thirty-four points up on the board. Uh, they were just really, really efficient. But first down, I mean, they averaged over five yards of play. On first down, on first down carries, they averaged 5.3 yards per carry, 20 runs for 105 yards. Just for context, the Eagles had 24 offensive plays this past week against Seattle, 2.1 yards per play. I mean, less than half of that. So when you talk about uh, having the ability to win on third down, you know, we always hear, oh, you got to have success on first and second down. That for those first down numbers, huge in terms of overall efficiency offensively. The Eagles have to find a way to have that level of success on first down on Sunday afternoon. So, uh, all right, before we let you go, we're going to do as we always do. We're going to take a look at one player on the opposing team. Just kind of talk big picture a little bit. It's time for Scouting Report. Dim those lights. We're headed to the film room for the Scouting Report. All right, Ben, so this week here on Scouting Report, I want to focus in on pass rusher Zadarius Smith from the Green Bay Packers and uh, just kind of talk about how we viewed him coming out of Kentucky. This is six years ago now, geez, uh, when he was coming out of Kentucky uh, in 2015. Overall thoughts on how you viewed him and uh, ultimately his career arc here so far in the NFL. All right, I want to take this backwards because this was the best pass rusher in the NFL last year, bar none. That's whoever you want to put in that conversation, the Boses and the Aaron Donalds and Miles Garrett. Zadarius Smith was the best pass rusher in the NFL. One from a variety of linemen up and down the defensive line, stand up, hand in the turf, variety of pass rush plans, hand moves, stunts, twists, games. He really, last year, was everything we wanted Jadavian Clowney to be, being the number one overall pick. Just that relentless, you can line him up anywhere, beat anybody. Really, really impressive player, uh, particularly last year. But taking it back to his days at Kentucky, he was a big defensive end at 6'4", 275. But coming out of high school, he played basketball mostly in high school. He wanted to be a basketball player in college, joined the football team just a couple days before his senior season. So a little bit raw in his football uh, maturation and getting onto the field. Ended up just going JUCO to our favorite East Mississippi Community College, the old Last Chance U. Two seasons down there, became a highly coveted JUCO player. Was actually going to go to Florida State. A lot of people don't realize this. Hmm. Florida State defensive coordinator, Mark Stoops. Takes the head coaching job at Kentucky, brings old Zadarius Smith with him. So that's kind of how Zadarius Smith, highly covered JUCO kid, ended up at Kentucky. He was getting offers from Florida State and Auburn, some some who's who around the country. Everybody remembers Bud Dupree, first-round pick. Well, Zadarius was the opposite of him. Very quick off the ball, really good length, wingspan. You still saw the hand moves, the swims, the swats, the core strength. He'll fight with his upper body. He'll play through the whistle, really relentless. He'll even slide at three-tech in college every now and then. The issue with him, Fran, in college, he was stiff. 
He wasn't winning the high side rushes. He wasn't beating tackles with speed, very raw as well as far as play ID and things like that. He could really kind of wash himself out of plays uh, with any sort of misdirection just for not being on the field a whole lot, just didn't have a great flow and feel for certain schemes, particularly run schemes. But really active player, and you could see the flashes of the core strength, the upper body, the hand usage, the length, the wingspan, and just being relentless. Uh, and I think that's all kind of bled into his times early with the Baltimore Ravens and these two uh, one and a half seasons with the Packers so far. Yeah, I think, you know, going back to my notes on him, you, you mentioned, I mean, he was kind of a late bloomer, didn't play football to his senior year. Um, it, when you watch him, I saw him twice live. I saw him uh, at the East West Shrine Bowl. And he had a, a pretty good week down there. And then he was a late ad the week of at the senior bowl. So got to see him go down there and he performed well late in the week as well. Um, and that, he actually was a player that walking away from St. Petersburg, I was like, you know, this kid looked, looked pretty good. And honestly, better than what I saw on film, because, uh, you know, on film, I, you mentioned the stiffness. You didn't see much of a pass rush playing, but as you mentioned, kind of look, he was a raw player. He had not played a ton of games or a, lot, a ton of balls. So ultimately looking at his game, it was based off, the natural strength and power that was there and his high motor. And you said, all right, that's something we can work with. He had some relatives that had played in the league. He had a brother uh, who played with the Broncos. He had a cousin who played with the Giants. Um, you know, so there were some bloodlines there, you know, guys that had been through the process a little bit. Uh, but this was a really interesting player that you're like, all right, well, can he put it together? And you talked early at the very top about – watching him a year ago and all the different ways he was able to win and just the well-developed pass rush plan and, uh, you know, win, the ability to win from multiple techniques. I mean, you did not see that at Kentucky. You see it now uh, here, certainly with Baltimore, but then now the, over the past year and change uh, with the Green Bay Packers. So, um, you know, looking at Sedaria Smith and just trying to plot out uh, his development, I think has been kind of a fun process because he has turned into one of those fearsome edge players in the NFL. And they also line him up inside a good bit. Yeah, and I think he ended up with an, an absolute blessing in disguise draft spot going in the fourth round to the Baltimore Ravens. Ends up with guys like Elvis Doomerville and Terrell Suggs and even guys like Chris Canty, who were in the back half of his career, veteran presences around him to just learn the crafts and just become a better pro. And I really think he's he absorbed a lot of that kind of, uh, that uh, you know, mentoring from the older guys. I think, just think that was a great situation for him. Took free agent money to Green Bay. Huge first season. A little slow starting in 2020. Mike Pettin really relied on those one-on-one -on -one rushes to win again. Uh, Preston Smith, not quite the same player he was last year. Rashawn Gary is ascending. A uh, little slow with the pass rush as far as the first half of 2020, but definitely looks like it's picking up. So he's a guy that's not necessarily known for like elite first step, like get off the ball, fast twitch. Like that, that's not like his bag. And that's what's kind of interesting to me. And I feel like my, my thought process on a lot of these guys has changed. You're, you're going to get the, the freak show. I mean, Miles Garrett, we talked about a couple weeks ago, the way that he gets off the ball at his size is, you know, kind of unheard of. But when you look at uh, a large majority of these guys, I really feel like the power element, the ability to work through an offensive tackle that's something that I feel is a little bit more important to me than maybe I would have thought three, four years ago. And I, hey, I want to get the guy that's the you know the souped up race car that's going to turn the corner and, and beat a guy and edge a guy quickly. I don't know that I value that quite as much as I do. Hey, who's the guy that could just work right through your pads? You know, you see Brandon Graham work we, you know week after week after week, year after year. Um, you know, he is not a pure like oh, hey, I'm going to blow by you and, and turn the corner. He is going to mix it, th mix things up. There are times when he wins with a, with a high side rush, but he's trying to work through you just as often. 
Well, Fran, in the same boat, I can't remember who was talking about. I think it was offensive lineman at Masterminds this year that I didn't get to. But they were talking about Nick Bosa or Joey Bosa. And they're like, listen, guys, this guy isn't the biggest guy, the strongest guy, the fastest guy. How does he win all the time? Hands, 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 hands. And when I wrote down all of Zadarius Smith's moves from last year, cross chop, double hand swipe, stab chop, club rip, speed to power. Tell you what, this guy led the NFL in pressures last year. Rarely won with speed. Yep. Yep. The Bosa's, some of the best pass rushers in the NFL, rarely win with speed. They can obviously win the high side. Typically, they're doing that with some sort of hand usage. But you just hear all these top moves from Zadarius. None of it's speed-based. So like you're saying about power, going from A to B, playing through offensive linemen – Sometimes I want those guys as opposed to the what I call runaround types. Yep. So we talk about that a lot and say, oh, he's a runaround. He wants to just go around him. Sometimes I want those guys that are willing to go through you, and he could go outside, inside, through you, and have that three-way go. Yeah, I, even if you do like to be the, you know, if you if you like to win with speed, like that's cool, but you have to show that ability to win with some kind of power where you'll win low side at times. Because you think about who are some of the best pass rushers in the NFL right now. You go to uh, Cleo Mack. He is going to win with power. You mentioned Joey Bosa. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, look at Danell Hunter with what he can do with his long arm. J.J. Watt for years. Cam Jordan. T.J. Watt. Uh, yeah, T.J. Watt. Uh, you know, you talk, You mentioned Zadarius Smith. Frank Clark is going to run through you. B.G. Brandon Graham is going to go through you. Carlos Dunlap is going to go through you, right? But then you start getting, all right, well, who are the, the longer? Yeah, who are, who are the other ones? Yeah. So you look at Demarcus Lawrence. Like, yeah, mm. he wins with speed. But what is what has he developed over the last like three or four years that has oh, made wicked him so, wicked cross shot that and two the long he goes with that long arm and then goes long arm uh, slap rip right so he's yep. setting that that outside move with that devastating long arm that he's got so you've got to be able to to establish yourself as a power rusher and show that you can work through and I feel like that just that's what opens everything else up. You can't just well, be a pure runner. Well, are the speed rushers becoming the unicorns, the Von Millers of the world, the Robert Quinns? Is it the Harold Landrys of the world and saying, you know what, the run around speed rushers, high side rushers, is that doing more harm than good? Are they running themselves out of plays too often? Or would you rather have a Bradley Chubb who, yeah, I'm a good run defender. I could play on early downs and suddenly I'm leading the NFL or NFL rookies in sacks. Because like I'm on the, the field all the time. Who are the pure speed guys now? I mean, would you say like it's Von Miller, Yannick Ngakwe, Justin Houston? Like who else Who else would you say is like is that kind of guy in today's NFL? I mean, like Bud Dupree uh, coming out of Kentucky was that guy, but he's developed into a, a good power rusher as well. Like I guess Robert Quinn would be a good example. He's kind of bounced around. He's on his third team in three years. Um, you know, nice player, but again, he's kind of bounced around. That was the question with Brian Burns coming out of Carolina. He, he's done some really good – or coming out of Florida State, rather, and he's done some good things so far. I mean, it's look, looking at all the top pressures from last year, from Brandon Graham, Khalil Mack, Joey Bosa, Chandler Jones, Aaron Donald, Nick Bosa, Shaquille Barrett. I mean, none of these guys are – none of these guys are runaround types. Yeah, Shaq Barrett, I think, is uh, – you look at it and say, like, all right, he's probably in that, and he worked with Von Miller for years in Denver. So right, yeah. In terms of, like, uh, skill set-wise, that, that kind of – that would be – but again – that's the outlier, it seems, right? That's, That's why I look at guys like Josh Allen out of Kentucky. It's just weird we're going with another Kentucky right, pass another rusher game. and say, these runaround types, man, I just worry about them. Yeah. I worry about his ability to play point of attack against the run. I worry about his ability to be on the field in early downs. Yep. And typically, those edge rushers are a little light in the pants, whether it's Chris Rumpf out of Duke or Quincy Roche out of Miami this year, whoever it is. There's a bunch every year that they say, flexible edge rusher. Is he going to be able to play the run? Can I play him on early downs? Typically, those speed rushers have those issues. 
No question. We talk a lot about all of those guys over on the Journey of the Draft podcast, which you guys can find wherever podcasts can be found. Ben, this was fun, man. Uh, We will talk to you here next week on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade. Experience the fastest internet and more in a snap. With Xfinity XFi, you get the speed, coverage, control, and security you need for the ultimate in-home Wi-Fi experience. Xfinity, proud partner of the Philadelphia Eagles. Well, great stuff there from Ben, who you can follow on Twitter, just like I do, at BenFennel underscore NFL. And while you're at it, I'm at EaglesXOs. That's where I post all the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's Nose content that we produce here at Eagles Entertainment. And you know I greatly appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on all forms of social media. That's one way to support the show. But the other way is to go on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating, leave us a comment if you leave a question. We'll answer it here on the show. And today, I wanted to give a shout-out to somebody who did exactly that. There's two questions, or three questions, actually, that we're going to hit on here. Italian Baller left us a five-star review saying, Love the work you guys do. It's a must-listen podcast. A question. I think one cause the Eagles' offensive struggles this year is that the pass game needs to be more diversified. I see almost all five- and seven-step drop-back pass progression reads and for Wentz to find the open receiver based on coverage. I would like to see them do what some other teams do in terms of scheming receivers open with motion or play design and isolating our playmakers against weaker defenders. I'd like to see them feature Sanders and Rager the way that Kamara and Tyree Kill are used by their respective teams. Don't you think that would simplify things for Wentz and help him uh, get the ball out quicker? Thanks, Brett. Uh, Brett, that's a good question. And look, we talked about we talked about it earlier with Ben, right? Every offense has pros and cons. We talked earlier this season, earlier this week, rather, when I was talking with Greg, I asked him what he sees from the film. What is the identity in his mind of this Eagles passing game? And it's a lot of isolation-based routes. And we talked about the pros and cons of that. We talked about you know the, the, certainly there are cons to, to everything, but that's what they're hoping for is uh, the, the pros. And he talked about uh, some of the things that they're looking to do. Obviously, uh, the NFL is certainly trending more towards some of the offenses that you're talking about, uh, but there are lots of offenses that have had plenty of success uh, going with the, the path that the Eagles have taken. Look, I think the Eagles are looking for any way possible to try and get uh, this pass game, this run game, get them on track, get those those playmakers in space, get them the football. Uh, we'll see if they can t- continue to try and tweak things up and see if they can find a, a more efficient way to move the football down the field. But uh, certainly, I, 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 agree, I agree with what you're saying in terms of looking around at some of these other schemes and can they work some of this stuff in. I think that's something they'll look to continue to do over the final few weeks of the season. Uh, last question here, D. Jansen, 22, left a five-star review saying love the show look forward to it every week my wish for this year is for the team to just punch another team in the mouth and impose their will seems like this team is not attacking any defense i wish i could tell them this is your ball this is your end zone don't let anything stop you from catching that ball i just wish i could see one game where they play with fire in all three phases brett or jansen rather i think yeah that's something that we're all looking for especially that last part is whether you know where you're playing with all three phases that being said i don't think it's a play with fire aspect of it. I don't think that the, that the, the, the effort isn't there or anything like that. I think it's more just you know the, the execution part of it. And when you're not executing, it's hard to kind of get out of that rut. It's hard to get back into feeling that you're confident with everything that you're doing, right? And this isn't just uh, a, you know, one player or one position. That's a, that's a whole unit. And we talked about that back in the, the, the Cleveland game, that opening drive. They moved the ball uh, with ease, right? We saw a couple passes from Carson Wentz. We saw some runs from Miles Sanders, from Boston Scott. They're picking up chunk after chunk after chunk. And what happens? You get into the low red zone, and the ball comes on the ground. Cleveland, Cleveland jumps on it, and you get a turnover. And it's tough to say, like, man, like, why couldn't the offense just look like that the rest of the day? 
but those kinds of plays are deflating and there's a an unquantifiable like factor that those the, those kinds of plays have when turnovers have not just on your offense but on your defense as well and it's like oh man like it's tough to say oh here we go again we talked about it with Ike Reese literally that that night on the post game show uh, myself and Amy Campbell we we asked Ike about uh, what the kind of impact that can have that those kinds of things, it's it's tough for that not to creep into your mind. So ultimately, when it comes to execution and you know confidence and you know playing with what you're what you call playing with fire in all three phases, everybody's looking for that, right? The players are hoping for that. The coaches are hoping for that. Everybody is hoping uh, that you could find have that game where everything clicks. We just have to continue to hope that, that they can figure out a way to have that happen. Look, uh, the, the the clock is ticking now, getting closer to the end of the season. The Eagles no, no longer in first place in the division. They've got this tie that's in their back pocket. That's going to you know kind of make or break uh, you know breaking uh, essentially breaking a tie uh, with any teams that they have at the top of the NFC East. You've got uh, you know a couple of key games here, obviously against some winning teams, but really the two games that are going to matter most ultimately in this uh, in this season, those final two weeks against Dallas and against Washington to get some more division wins. Those are going to be pivotal. The Eagles have got to clean things up by the time they get certainly to that two game stretch to end the 2020 season. So, uh, Brett. Jansen, both you guys ask great questions. Thanks so much to both of you guys for your support. And if you guys have any questions at home, we will always answer them here on the podcast. All right, to wrap up this show, I caught up with Alex Singleton to talk about his athletic career and his background getting to the NFL. Let's get to that interview right now. Well, excited to welcome in for our one-on-one Eagles linebacker, Alex Singleton. Alex, welcome, man. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, well, let's talk about your background before we get into uh, the gridiron and talk about football. Take us back to young Alex. Uh, what, was, what was your first love uh, as a sports fan, or, or what did you first start playing as a kid? Uh, I've, you know, I played a lot of sports, but always football. Football's been been the number one dream my whole life. I actually, I have a picture. I don't know how old I was. I know I went from Peter Pan as a two-year-old. I dressed up every day as Peter Pan. And then at about two and a half, three, my parents gave me a Cardinals uniform. And right. I was a, I, I wore a Cardinals uniform about every day until until I had to go to school. All right, back in those days, they were in the same division as the Eagles. We'll, we'll forgive that yeah. at that point. But uh, who was your favorite player growing up? I was a Brett Favre fan. Gotcha. Okay, yep. that makes sense. Uh, when you so you grew up uh, Northern California, right? Thousand Oaks is that a northern part of the state? No, Southern California. Just, oh, really? Just outside of LA, actually. Yeah. All right, all right. So when you got to like middle school, high school, did you play other sports outside of football? Yeah, you know, I, I wrestled at one point. I okay. played baseball, and then really those three. And then uh, in high school, it just you know after my sophomore year it was just football. And were you always a linebacker? Always a linebacker. I tried to play quarterback for a little bit, and then uh, <laughs> you know that didn't work out. So then it was it was full time linebacker all right so take us through your recruiting process for college how, how do you how do you end up at montana state uh it was, it was pretty simple one one school came and only got one one offer so nice. it was kind of uh uh best you know best opportunity i got i uh went up to montana for the first time in february all i had was a snowboard jacket that was probably about as thin <laughs> as this so i remember freezing on my recruiting trip and then i uh, committed that weekend because like it was the only offer i had so i, I was going so the initial plan i had read was that you were going to redshirt your first year and then you kind of burned that redshirt just because of what you were doing on special teams was that something that was kind of the plan going in like hey you know what like i'm going to work my way to where they're not going to redshirt me 
Uh, you know, that's how you always want to go in, you know, to camp yeah. as a, you know, as a college, you know, freshman. But yeah, and it's not like now when uh, if you only play, you know, five right. or six games, you get that red shirt you're back. So, you know, back then, you know, for them to burn your red shirt, you know, halfway through a season was kind of a big deal. And I just remember one week one of, one of the coaches came up to me and he was like, hey, you know, we need you to play. And uh, that was kind of it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I think you always work, you know, to be the best player you can and help your team win. And, you know, it's obviously worked out uh, full circle now, you know, to where I'm at. And, uh, so, you know, I'm more than thankful to have done that for that team. No question. And obviously, you, as you mentioned, it's all kind of worked out to where you've gotten to where you are in the middle of the Eagles defense right now. But take us through now after college, that pre-draft process leading up. Did you go to all-star games? Uh, what was the pro day circuit like? Like, what was that pre-draft process like for you? Yeah, so uh, no no all-star game, uh, none wow. of that. Uh, I, went, I went straight home. I graduated uh, that winter, so I got to go home right away. And uh, I trained uh, for my pro day, which happened to be in about uh, three or four inches of snow up in Montana. So, I, <laughs> you, know, everything, you know, everything just really uh, <laughs> was real helpful in my uh, recruiting process and then also draft process. Yeah, the stars really aligned for you. So you, so you go, it was, a, it was Seattle, New England. Yeah, and then, uh, then back to Seattle a few times here yep. and there. And then uh, the last few weeks was in Minnesota. And then eventually they released me before, right before OTAs. Was there a player early on during that time that you kind of connected with early and they'd kind of, kind of you know, hey, I'll show you the ropes kid kind of situation? Uh, what was awesome uh, about Seattle at that time, and I mean still is, uh, Bobby, KJ, and uh, Bruce Irvin were there. And, you know, they were – they were three guys that even to this day, you know, I still lean on, you know, for advice and just, you know, have conversations just, you know, as a man. So at that, that time to have those three, you know, one show me and then also, you know, just be, you know, those figures on the field, you know, is pretty special to me. And then what went into the decision to say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go up to the CFL and make, you know, make that career there? Yeah, you know, uh, during that season, uh, I got my Canadian citizenship and I uh, knew I could be in the draft up there. So when Minnesota released me, I had been, you know, cut in that season 13 times. And I was just like, you know what, I want to play football. So I just decided to, you know, take my, you know, go up to Calgary and take my chance up there. I'm assuming when you went up there, you brought a little bit more than the, the snowboarder's jacket this time. Yeah, you know, after <laughs> after being uh, in Montana for four years, I, I definitely had an arsenal of uh, winter clothes. And then so now you come back to, to the NFL to be able to play. What was that opportunity like, uh, and how did that come about? How did you end up here in Philadelphia? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the three years in Canada, you know, I, I put everything into that. It was kind of, you know, when you sign a three-year contract, you don't you don't really know how whatever's going to happen, you know, whether your plans ever come back in the NFL or not. You know, three years is still a long time to, you know, play any contact sport. And so, you know, when – and luckily we won a championship my last season in Canada. And then so right after we had won, I had about a week of uh, enjoying that. And then uh, it was to the, you know, kind of workout circuits again, you know, kind of that – you know, free agent, you just, you know, come from the CFL, it's not like you're a high-priority free agent. You know, you're a guy that's just kind of, hey, I want, you know, I'm knocking on the door again. Hopefully someone lets me in. And, you know, I had five workouts, one obviously with Philadelphia, and it ended up being that it felt like the best fit to me and, you know, the best offer. And, you know, so that's – I grabbed it and just ran with it. Uh, You made a good decision, Uh, thankfully for everybody. (laughs) Uh, Let me ask you this question before we cut you loose. What is one part of playing linebacker that you feel that not a lot of people talk about, whether it's media, fan base, but it's really, really important to the position? Oh, man, that's a tough question. I think, uh, you know, being a leader, and I think people talk Mm. about it, but, you know, just, you know, taking control of the defense. It's a, it's a tough thing to do, especially, you know, stepping in, you know, in my situation halfway through the season, you know, kind of being a guy that was just a special teamer. Uh, sure. You got to you gotta step in as a leader at, at any level uh, playing linebacker because you really are the only one that's communicating with the front and the back end all the time. You're the one that's relaying the calls. 
And uh, I would say that's the the biggest thing. I think the media and everybody talk about it, but also I think that uh, that's still the biggest thing that even is unspoken. And, and you growing up playing the position the, your entire life, there are so many people that will say you know watch a college safety or you know say oh you know what we can move them over to linebacker. Do you feel like that's tough to be able to kind of learn how to be able to you know be that field general? Yeah, and I th- I think that's the toughest uh, thing for people. It's because yeah. uh, you can't just focus solely on yourself. You got to worry about all eleven guys around you because. Mm. You know, if if someone's not right to your left or someone's not right to your right, all of a sudden, you know, you're you're out of two gaps instead of just you know having a guy next to you. And so you got to be able to communicate with everybody. And I think it's it is tough when guys move. And you know, the guys that do it, man, hats off to them because you know I've been doing this now for. 20, 20 years or so, and it's still tough. So the guys that do it halfway through a career is pretty impressive. Well, Alex, it's been a lot of fun to watch you play. Eagles fans really, really excited about you. Keep it going. We'll take catch up with you later right here on PhiladelphiaEagles.com. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much to Alex Singleton and all of you out there for your continued support of this show and all the rest of our podcast offerings at Eagles Entertainment. All that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade. For everybody here at the NovaCare Complex, I'm Fran Duffy. We'll talk to you next week. Raise a glass to that comforting feeling of an Eagles touchdown with the all-new Broaden Patterson Wine Collection created in partnership with Wink. Featuring a Cabernet, a Rosé, and a Chardonnay, Broad and Patterson wines are the perfect pairing for any occasion. Now you can bring the sweet taste of victory with you to a dinner with friends or to the tailgate with your game day crew. Purchase online today at philadelphiaeagles.com wine to stock up and have Broad and Patterson delivered right to your door. A portion of proceeds from every bottle benefit Eagles Autism Foundation.